0: This is KEXU 96.1 FM, Poe People's Revolutionary Radio. I'm JV, and you're listening to Free Aslan. And today, um, we have a very good show. We have Matt Cedillo is going to be coming on, and Karina acri Paez. And um, they are both of Tele Jaguar, and they're going to be talking to us about the media, the revolutionary media that they are doing. And uh, we'll be getting to that interview in just a minute. But first, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, this this virus that is, you know, plaguing the people. Uh, this is a serious virus, you know, and a lot of the listeners probably um, know people who got it. You know, um, it's, it's very, very, very serious. And, you know, um, I know a couple of people that got it too. So this is, you know, hitting very close. This is, you know, and, and the thing about this virus is that, um, you know, they call it COVID-19. I like to, you know, they call it COVID-19. They say it's uh, coronavirus disease um, 2019. Uh, I like to call it Cavid 19 uh, capitalist virus disease. Uh, two thousand and nineteen because you know it's it, a lot of these uh, viruses you know they're caused from um, this overconsumption and you know effects of capitalism and um and you know this capitalism uh, affects us in many different ways, not just financially in our pockets, not just on our backs, in our shoulders, by exploiting our labor, but you know, it, it also affects us medically, you know, and with disease and lack of medical attention, uh, this all stems from capitalism. In many ways, we can trace its roots. Uh, and, and so, you know, we could get really deep. We could have, you know, many shows talking about dissecting that aspect of... Um, but, you know, just for the show, um, you know, I'll say that this virus is very, very serious, you know, here, uh, you know, we take it very serious here um, at um, at KEXU. And, you know, um, we we are here, you know, we're still doing the radio, but, you know, we're, we're wearing masks and we're prepared uh, because it's 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 a serious thing. But, you know, another thing that's happening is this should be pointed out is that. Um, You know, in many of the, in the East Coast or West Coast, um, many of the black and brown community are affected um, uh, in in many, in many places, way more than anybody else. Um, You know, in New York, for example, um, Queens, uh, the borough of Queens is having a major uh, situation outbreak there. And, you know, it's mostly brown and black people living in these in that borough and and you know but you could trace this to um you know any community even here in california where you know a lot of the people um you got to look at what they call essential workers um these are um mostly you know brown and black folks these are people that work in the service industry they work in grocery stores they work in you know um restaurant type, uh, services construction plumbing you know this is mostly brown labor um that's 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 going on here um you know we can go into any restaurant any fast food restaurant we can go into many of the grocery stores we could look at any of the construction companies and we're going to see brown labor so um what's happening is you know brown labor uh is you know exposing um is being exposed to these uh, to this deadly virus, um, and basically, uh, you know, um, being, brown bodies being sacrificed, uh, in order to keep the wheels turning, uh, in this country, so this is something that, uh, you know, we have to identify, and we have to understand, um, what we're up against, you know, and, you know, uh, speaking of these, the brown labor force, um, The brown working class, you know, a lot of workers are, you know, um, Amazon workers, these warehouse workers are going on strike. You know, they're not giving them protective uh, gloves, masks, the protective wear that they should have. Um, You know, where I live in San Jose, uh, you know, I just seen McDonald's workers going on strike, you know, and McDonald's workers. I don't know how many people have been in McDonald's or passed by McDonald's, but um, like all fast food places, most of the workers are Rasa. So, you know, um, the majority are the overwhelming majority. And so, you know, these Rasa workers are going on strike. Of course, McDonald's isn't, you know, providing them um, with what they need. Uh, they need um you know protective gear they don't have proper insurance they don't have a lot of things and this is very common with you know the brown working class uh in this in this occup in these occupied territories because you know um exploitation you know they're not really going to go out and exploit um you know, the oppressor nation is not going to exploit itself. And, um, and so it's usually uh, brown and black workers that take the brunt of this um, exploitation and always have and, you know, and always will until we, um, you know, can liberate ourselves from this, um, this super predator that we're dealing with. You know, the super, I, I like to call it, um, I once described America as the super parasite. And, you know, and that's a good way of describing uh, what we deal with on an ongoing basis. But another thing I want to mention, um, you know, in, um, in the prisons. The prisons, the prisoners are facing this, uh, this plague just like we are, only they can't social distance. They can't do nothing. But um, be locked in cells with other people who may be infected or locked in dormitories with, um, you know, multiple people who may be infected. And, um, you know, prisoners um, are finding ways to resist, as always. Uh, Migrant women, you know, I just heard that they went on hunger strike in Tacoma, Washington, in one of the, um, you know, one of the jails that holds migrant people um it was i believe the northwest detention center and over 60 women went on hunger strike and you know they're demanding you know they have very revolutionary demands by the way they're not just asking for you know cosmetic changes or you know different color socks you know they're they're asking you know they they, they're asking for you know they have four points They're asking for vulnerable prisoners to be released immediately. Uh, They're asking for a moratorium on transfers. You know, that's sending prisoners to other facilities where they're just going to continue to spread the virus. Um, They're also, point three, they're asking for a moratorium on deportations. Stop the deportations uh And number four, they're asking for humanitarian visas for detainees, so these are very progressive demands that they're asking for they're basically you know asking for um you know ice to stop you know its deportations and and everything that it is doing and um and many times, as in any situation it's gonna it takes the people themselves who were uh, deeply, um, affected by an injustice to be the ones to, you know, um, to put a stop to it. And, you know, we see ice, you know, we, they need pressure from those of us out here, uh, to put pressure where we can to, um, on ice and, you know, uh, the government as well. Um, so that they stop these deportations. And um, they start releasing people in these uh, ICE death camps. But, you know, ultimately, it's them inside there who are, you know, who are going to pull the trigger. And they are pulling the trigger by, you know, um, going on this mass hunger strike. Um, And, you know, um, because once this epidemic hits the prisons, um, you know, we're talking about mass deaths. Uh, you know, and, and so this is, you know, you have thousands, you have two over 2 million people, uh, imprisoned in, uh, America's concentration camps. So over 2 million people, that's a lot of people. Some are getting out, some will be released and will be bringing, uh, any infection that they, um, acquire out here. So, You know, um, this is a problem for everybody and, you know, the prisoners are rising up and, um, resisting, um, this death sentence that they're, you know, that's being issued to them. So that's something that we should all look into and find ways of assisting and supporting. Um, you know, what they're, they're basically protesting, That you know, a lot of them are in there for very petty, uh, so called crimes. Because remember, crimes in America are you know, suspect, they're questionable. Because uh, the very people that create these laws that call our actions crimes um, are the biggest criminals in the world. So, we don't put too much emphasis on what is a crime and what is not. You know, as I've said many times. Here at Free Aslan, we don't recognize the laws of uh, America's laws, the colonizer's laws. We act according to what is morally just. We don't care what the colonizer said is this law or that law. We care about what's morally correct, and that's how we live our lives. So, you know, um, this is something when it comes to prisons and laws and so-called crimes you know, that's a very gray area because, um, the colonizer is the last person to define what a crime is and what a law is when they've broken every single law you can think of. So, you know, this is something that we have to keep an eye on. We have to pay attention to the prisoners because these are our people. Um, especially the children who remain in these ice camps and, um, And this is something that, you know, um, that, you know, there has to be action and there is going to be action. There's going to be a direct action. I know here in the Bay area that, um, you know, people are discussing right now, what kind of actions in order to put pressure on ice and the governor as well. And, um, and I can't wait for this to get, you know, um, to come to fruition and, um, and and there has to be some kind of direct action in order to apply pressure on uh, this injustice. Because uh, you have children that are being forced into these ICE death camps with this virus um, going on. Uh, and this is just unbelievable that, uh, you know, these um, so-called uh, colonizer leaders can even um you know support uh they support without flinching it's nothing to them you know it's unbelievable but so this is something that we have to uh keep an eye on and you know the prisoners um you know just because they're prisoners you know we still stand united with them in unity um and we will never forget our prisoners behind enemy lines our sisters and our brothers who continue the struggle uh they're struggling against the same oppressor as us uh we are on the same side and um and we will never forget them and we will continue to struggle even though we are on this side of enemy lines we will continue to struggle with them and work parallel with our brothers and sisters um who remain captive uh in the concentration camps within the united snakes so uh you know, another thing is, you know, there was, uh, you know, the prisoners, um, you know, we have to find ways of um, imagining and, um, and creating within our own circles and our own organizations and, and you know, with our own ability, um, different ways of supporting prisoners um, in their struggles um, And and prisoners all over the world are struggling. Uh, you know, we got prisoners in Palestine, political prisoners, you know, we, there was a prison in Yemen just recently that was bombed, a prison that was bombed in Yemen, you know, and I think four or five people died there, so, you know, it's just unbelievable that um, people can think that just because somebody's in prison, um, that, you know, that, that their life means nothing, so, you know this is something this is just an example of capitalism and um and how human life means nothing under capitalism it's just incredible um and, and 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 this feeling is is coming from the very people and the very entity that um calls us criminals uh and yet they could care less about human life unbelievable but with that being said, I'm going to um, switch over now and uh, get into this interview. And it's a very good, very good interview. I've been waiting a very long time. Um, and so uh, I have here Karina Acri Paez and Matt Cedillo, both of Tele Jaguar. Uh, Matt, Karina, welcome to Free Aslan. Thank
1: you, Joey, thank you for having us. Having us.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Y saludos a toda mi gente a toda la raza que nos está escuchando. Mm. Igualmente <laughs> a los dos. And, um, and with that being said, let me go into the first. I've been waiting a very long time to interview you both. And you know, we we both, you know, everybody's busy and stuff. But I'm very happy now. Um, finally got you guys on the on the um, on the show. And let me just start off with this first question. Uh, the first question, I'll go to Karina with, um, you know, Tele Jaguar. You know, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this media project that you, um, you both are, um, are working on? Tell us a little bit about Tele Jaguar.
1: Absolutely. I'm happy to do that. So Tele Jaguar is a medium platform that we started in, 2000, in late 2019. And we're building the platform for what we're calling Jaguar Nation, which is um, a.k.a. for Vasa, There are four of us at Tele Jaguar. There is Maria Flores, who is the director of Jaguar Intelligence and Investigation. Um, we also have Ernesto Ayala, who is the minister of meme defense. Um, myself, uh, I'm the general secretary of Jaguar Diplomacy and Matt Zedillo, who is the interim president for Life of Jaguar Nation.
0: Wow, I love and, that. And uh,
1: we, we also have a permanent president in exile who's named Franzia Fanon. Wow. And, and um, so Jaguar is a media platform. It's kind of our answer to the surge of this, quote, like, woke politics that has surfaced over the past couple of years. This is the kind of politics that focuses on endless critique of words, discussion of traumas and feelings, and the infamous political position that because of a particular identity, um, someone has the right to be right and cannot be questioned. Um, This kind of woke politics, um, to be specific, um, has also um, engaged in things like telling Mexicanos and Chicanos that we're not indigenous, um, that much of this woke politics has also targeted the Chicano movement um, in the last year and put much emphasis on attempting to dismantle legitimate organizing education and material-based analysis so we want to expose and destroy this brand of woke politics we want to bring media content from a chicano and mexicano perspective which is focused on two things historical analysis and material analysis so at Jaguar we're going to derive our sense of reality from history and economics and our sense of direction from la lucha, or the struggle. Um, further to this, I'll invite our r- listeners to read an article that Matt wrote called Politics or Not Therapy, um, and that article can be found on our Facebook page and our website. So we want to fill a void, expose what we consider harmful, useless, and ineffective politics, and refocus analysis on historical and material-based um, realities.
0: beautiful yeah and um and the thing about it is a lot of people don't they don't see the power in uh, media media is you know one of our biggest weapons at this in this stage and you know the oppressor the the oppressor has you know they have a lot of tools in their uh arsenal and uh, media is one of them They use it very wisely. And for so long, uh, we have, you know, we have not as a people, um, as oppressed people, those of the oppressed nations have not um, put as much into media as we should. And so um, I'm very happy to hear that uh, Tele Jaguar is, um, you know, stepping up and handling it. Because um, we need that, we need many tele and and, and and so yeah, yeah that's. Yeah,
1: we're grateful for what you're doing as well, Joey. And uh, you know, the more the better. It's um, you know we we know the power. Technology has made it uh, you know very easy for us to develop these platforms, and it's important for us, as you said, to take control of the narrative and to redefine the narrative, and to so. And I I believe that one of the best things that we can do for our people is to arm them with the truth. Um, and that is something that we can do by building our own um, media platforms. And so, you know, we have, we have so, many, so many options through social media and, you know, blogging now, and there's really a wonderful opportunity for us to be doing this.
0: Absolutely. And, and, um, and um, I was very excited when I first began to see... The work that um you all are doing with tele jaguar and and so i look forward to uh watching it grow and um watching the effectiveness take root um because um i could see the uh the power in it. it is just and, and it's it's right okay. on point yeah absolutely but um so let me get to the next question i wanted to um uh aim this question at Matt. You know, I I seen that you know he was uh, recently um engaged in a conversation with a, a certain professor um and they were discussing um uh Marx Karl Marx's Capital and you know this is something that um this is a book that not a lot of people engage in um you know um And and it's, um, you know, it's a very, it it can be a very dense book, a very, a book that's very difficult to, to grasp and and understand everything. But I think that, you know, um, I think that anybody who reads it is going to grasp something in there and they're going to, they're going to understand certain things and then they read it a second time or a third time and then they understand more but um, economics is very important, um, and understanding um, capitalist uh, economy and how a socialist economy is run—very important topics. Um, you know, we can't look at governments um, falling and and rising without looking at economies, because we have to have an economy to to have a country and to have a nation a liberated nation. Um we have to know you know how to plan plan an economy and how to do different things. So but I wanted to you know I thought it was very I thought it was very beautiful that Matt um engaged in this discussion and um and so Matt I wanted to ask you though um you know for the listeners um why is Karl Marx relevant today?
2: Well, I think that um, Karl Marx is really relevant in the way that, you know, he was one of the very first people to, I mean, Karl Marx wrote about, a lot of people wrote about, you know, political economy for for you know centuries, but, and, and, throughout, and throughout the world and in different time periods, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily, the earliest writings on political economy don't necessarily come out of Europe, but he wrote about it at a time when, when Europe was industrializing and when all these kinds of things that would kind of shape the world kind of was, you know, really coming into fruition. And he coined a lot of terms that would be taken on by people throughout the world. So getting familiar with the way he talks about things and how he describes things, um, you could feel his influence on people who have written um, in a much more recent period. So getting familiar with Karl Marx in general is kind of important, because looking at the world through the lens of political economy, is very important, whether, you know, Mark said something or whether someone else said something. Looking at the world and looking for its economic looking problems is very important. So if we talk about ourselves as colonized people, as oppressed people, well, there's an economic route to that, and that, you know, that conquest and war and these these uh, these uh positions we find ourselves in uh, within what would be called the proletariat, but we find ourselves as the proletariat of the proletariat. We find ourselves laboring in positions that... Um, in many ways the entire structure of society is, is geared to push us towards, right? And if you actually get outside those boundaries, if you start you know, if you excel in school, if you go to extensive colleges, you're made to feel like you don't belong there, right? Well that's not an individual thing that's happening on an individual level. It's because you are born to a people who were conquered in a war, who have been slotted to, to labor at the lowest stations of the workforce. And that's why that happens. So it's not happening on an individual level. So understanding the political economy helps us make sense of our lives. And that's, that's first and foremost. Now, understanding in this particular period of time, and especially reading the book Das Kapital, you'll, you'll notice that if you, if you open the word Das Kapital, and I, I'm the type of person that I really try to make the, um, the complex simple, not the simple complex. And I feel like people have a lot of issues and challenges, with Marx because, you know, you kind of have the opposite approach. But the thing about that is you have to understand that Karl Marx, you know, he, he wrote so much and reiterated his opinions so many and over again because there was all kinds of people trying to discredit him. So he had to make these really airtight arguments that were, like, down to the letter because all these people, like, trying to make it look like, you know, he was talking about or that wasn't true or, no, this is a really good thing. The capital is our best interest. So he was, like, not just writing to be correct. He was also writing in response to people trying to um, say some other stuff. So uh, if you look at capital, though, it opens, the first the first chapter of capital is it opens on the commodity. And this is really, really important for our time to understand the concept of commodity. What a commodity is, is a commodity is, is everything. You know, a cup of coffee is a commodity, a pencil is a commodity, a lamp is a commodity, a desk is a commodity. Everything, the stuff of life, the stuff that we are just surrounded by, come into the world through this economic system as a commodity, which means they are meant to be sold, they meant to be bought and sold. And so that's the first primary thing about them and not just whatever their function is, not just the utility. So we have a situation now where we're facing a pandemic. Now, because we live in a system that's dominated that's dominated by the production of commodities and not a planned economy, where we could think about like, well, what, would happen? What, what do we need in case of emergency? We live in this situation where we don't produce enough ventilators. We don't produce enough masks. We don't produce enough gloves, right? And so all these protective gloves, we have tattoo artists donating their protective gloves. We have um, veterinarians uh, donating their protective ventilators. We have priests going into crypts and finding masks and donating those to our, local hospitals. And we have these terrible situations. And it's, it's very you know, nice that people are doing these things, but it's a really horrible situation that we live in, a, in an economy that does not plan for crisis like this because even though it's perfectly predictable... Um, for people whose job it is to predict certain things, uh, there's no, under normal circumstances, there's no demand for ventilators. There's no, like, demand, like, oh, and, you know, like, there's no, there's not, that many hospitals are not going to buy that many ventilators. That many hospitals are not going to buy that many masks. Individuals are not going to buy that many masks. Individuals are not going to buy that those, those, those gloves. So they only produce what they think they can sell. So that is the the, the economy we live in. And in this particular time, it's a life or death question. So reading Karl Marx is going to help you understand why it is that, you know, in China, which has, you know, a planned economy, they can build a hospital in days and why in the United States of America we have veterinarians donating ventilators to hospitals.
0: Mm. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And and um and you know, uh I think that we can learn a lot um about you know um different steps to take from from other countries there's a couple of countries and and i'll i'll get into that a little bit later but i wanted to ask both of you you know both of you are are very much you know um you know you you are very um vocal in your stance against injustice and that's a beautiful thing and and you know everybody that i've come across who you know um there's everybody has different reasons of um you know coming into um this struggle and um you know uh, standing up against injustice everybody has a a reason you know some people were born into it you know they were fortunate enough to have um parents who um raised them as conscious um children uh you know other other people there was migration issues um others police brutality uh you know torture etc and so you know college you know many different things but you know i was interested because i've been following both of your works um for, for for a while and so i was curious um and this question goes to both of you um whoever wants to start first but um i'd like to ask you both Uh, What led you to political consciousness and struggling against injustice as you do?
1: Um, For me, I am a first-generation Chicana, and I was raised by my mother who came to the U.S. in her early 30s from Mexico City. So I saw firsthand the horrific racist treatment of my mother being degraded constantly by (laughs) gabachos, She endured much harassment in every sphere of our lives, from church to work and every other uh, avenue you can imagine. And since she came to the U.S. in her early 30s, she had a very heavy accent, so that made her a very easy target to constant abuse. However, my mother was a very proud Mexicana and instilled that in me as well. She was a fighter and a defender of justice, an advocate of the oppressed, so she was my primary example in life. Um, and I think what formed the basis of my political consciousness is when I became an avid student of history in my teenage years, um, kind of I gravitated toward issues of land, labor, color, and comparative histories of slavery and colonialism in the Americas. So when the experiences of my youth met a burgeoning interest in history um, in exploring colonialism by western quote unquote, civilization, I think a firm desire to expose and combat these systems and structures of injustice was born. And so that interest in history crossed over very naturally for me into politics of self-determination, human rights, and justice from a class- and race-based perspective. Mm. Beautiful.
2: And and Matt? Um, So I kind of had like a little detour, actually. What happened was... uh, when I was a kid, I actually, I wanted to be uh, uh, the president of the United States. Because you know, <laughs> <laughs> I knew that when I grew up, I'd have a job, right? Okay. And I'm like, well, who's the boss of all bosses, right? Who's the, who's the, who's the big thong? Oh, okay. And that was the president, right? So I was like, I want to be the president. Yeah. And around 67, my father told me that we, I couldn't be president, right? Because Because we're Mexican, and I thought... At first, I thought he meant it was a legal status thing, and, I, and he kind of explained. I'm like, no, nah, Dad, I was born in Hammer. We are you talking about? I was going to <laughs> hospital. Like, no, no, no. No, no, no. Like, no, you can't be president because we are Mexican. Now, I want to be clear, but my dad gets mad when I tell the story. He did say that, but he didn't say that like, you know, stop dreaming, because like two years later, he took me to meet like the congressman and stuff like that, and so he was like you could be a congressman though, like, <laughs> <I was> like <laughs> you can know, like you know, make the family proud that way and maybe get some business deals or something like that. But um but uh that was that was where his mind was at. But um but when that happened, I you know, I you know, I really loved going to Washington C and seeing everything, but um, you know, I'm a kid, I'm i I'm still forming. But uh it it really it left a bad a bad taste in my mouth that way and I can't be the best thing because of of you know the skin or the, the the family I was born to. No, 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 I, I, don't, I don't like that. So then I, I took this big detour that I was going to become an artist instead and write all kinds of like things about like quote unquote human condition. that I was going to make uh, um, art, not not propaganda and all, all that nonsense that people get into, uh, particularly when they, so, some people get into, particularly when they're teenagers. Um, I got. I was kind of, so I was the opposite of, of Karina. I was. I got. Very much like art for art sake type type person and very very apolitical very absent of politics um so I was in my twenties and I ended up homeless, and I was like, okay well um i I'm supposedly really smart, but here I am homeless, so I'm gonna go into the library and read guess what Das Kapital, mm-hmm. right so I started trying to read Kapital. Wow. this is like, a little complicated, so I, I kind of like toned it down a little bit, started some other books, and then I read in this one book, I don't remember what it was like labor for some some I can't remember the name of it, but it was like. It told me that what you need to do is like prove that you are the hardest worker, earn your coworkers respect, and then you can organize them. So at the time, like I was, I was at that point couch surfing, and I got a job at Lowe's, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go in there, I'm gonna work harder than everybody at Lowe's, and then they're gonna respect me, and then I'm gonna like lead them to form a union and this and that. So <laughs> yeah. then I, I go to work, and I start outworking everybody, hustling, you know, grabbing all the bags, lifting, running to the cars and everyone hated me, like that, <laughs> <laughs> because, um, you know, I'm working hard, everybody, making everyone look bad, and that's how usually it to yeah. absolutely, that, that's what happens, yeah, yeah, I'm exhausted, I'm looking like, you know, I'm looking I'm like, I'm like kissing up to the, the, and I am, you know, I guess, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was a way of challenging the bosses, I'm really looking like a, like a, a bootlicker, so then, so um, well, that didn't work, and then, so, uh, um, anyway, I come back to California, and I'm very politicized now now i'm now i'm very political and now i'm like i'm gonna put away my dreams of being a bourgeois artist and i'm gonna like uh fight for the for the for the for the, for the working man and for the for the for the chicanos and for the for my people and for la Raza. and you know it's very like you know but very like you know stern and like you know uh whatever and um you know I mean they, they may not like me but they're gonna respect me kind of attitude it was so ridiculous uh and then i ended up uh going to like these poetry readings and um and I heard people doing poetry, and I'm like, oh, I know how to do this. It's uh, because, like, sometimes you, you hear, like, a voice, and you know you can imitate it. Right. Like, I knew I could imitate what they're doing. I knew exactly how to write like, that kind of stuff. Like, you know, I knew how to do the foreshadowing, how to, like, do this, and have a big, climactic ending. I knew exactly how to do it. And I was like, you know, and I could do this better than them, because I know a lot more than them. So <laughs> so I went in there, I did it, and um, and everyone, you know, and that was kind of, like, how I, I got started and how I... Um, it wasn't like how I got started. I, mean, I was already politicized, but I was, you know, I was kind of on the edges and fringes of things. So I was working, you know, in retail, and I was working like, you know, I was a manager, so I was working like 45 hours, 50-hour weeks. Mm. Um, so I was like, you know, just really working really hard, and then I didn't really have like much free time doing anything. So, you know, I would attend marches, and I would write little things for little pamphlets online and stuff like that, but I was really not in it, you know, until I started writing poetry, and so people started wanting me to come and open their rallies and stuff like that. So that was kind of You know, that was kind of what happened, or how it Mm. happened.
0: Yeah. Well, that's everybody... I think every story is beautiful. And and the the thing about it, I think that somebody should actually write a book with just these kinds of stories in there of what got certain people involved in political struggle, um, what brought people to political consciousness. I think these stories... um, you know, to me, um, are very beautiful, and they're very educational, because there's so many people out there, and, and, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, they can't um, become politically conscious, because it um, takes, you know, they have to uh, understudy with some political guru, or, you know, they have to go, you know, they have to, you know, go here and go there, but in reality, um it's just these um everyday stories these everyday situations that that bring people um to the side of justice in uh i think that um every story is beautiful because um in order to get somebody to uh gravitate um to to struggle um i i think that that's it has to take something that um you know the pull has to be very strong to get somebody to go against um selfish interests, you know, because um it's very easy to, to be selfish and to think of oneself and even right now, you know, we can be spending our time uh you know um you know polishing um this hobby, this collection or that collection or what what have you And yet, um, you know, we're here sharing these stories and, um, you know, attempting to educate people on on certain things. So I think that um, these stories are very beautiful. I love them. And I have to start asking more um, people more about these, uh, you know, what brought them to this side of justice. But but anyway, um, I would like to um, ask both of you another question. You know... um, there's a lot of stuff going on. We, you know, everybody has certain projects that are more near and dear to them. Everybody has um, things that, um, you know, they're they're more passionate um, about. And there's many different reasons. Um, I would like to ask you both. You know, um, out of all these struggles, uh, you know, I'm sure you both have um, participated in different. Um, different actions, different things, different campaigns. And so, you know, I would like to know um, what campaign or action uh, impacted you the most and why. And I would like to ask both of you this question.
1: Okay, this is Karina. I guess I'll start. Um, I actually have two that are tied. So first, um, I would say Standing Rock. Um, And for me, Standing Rock was... Um, extremely profound in my life because we saw the literal fulfillment of the eagle and condor prophecy and the solidarity of over 500 indigenous nations coming together in solidarity. So that was meaningful to me on very deep levels when it came to identity, um, um, unity of indigenous nations in Turtle Island. And secondly, because of one of the primary lessons that we can glean from Standing Rock which is the power of community media and the Mm. importance of being the architects of our own media so that we can control the narrative. And we learned how powerful community media through Indigenous Eyes was at Standing Rock. I'll give you a quick example. Um, I was volunteering with Digital Smoke Signals, which is a media platform through Indigenous Eyes at the time. Perhaps you've heard of Myron Dewey, who's the founder of Digital Smoke Signals. Mm. He's the one who um, brought the drones to Standing Rock, basically. Mm. And on our live feed, sometimes we had thirty thousand people watching at a time.
3: Wow.
1: Um, on the night of Backwater Bridge in November of two thousand and sixteen, which you may remember, and our listeners will remember was the night when water cannons with toxic mm. chemicals and rubber bullets aimed at the close range to the heads, knees, and groins mm. of unarmed water protectors um, you know happened, we had five million people on a live stream. So we had five wow. million people from all over the world watching what was happening at Backwater Bridge. And so that was effective to show the world what the whole movement is about. Mm. And through those live feeds, um, we also had, were used strategically as evidence in court when many of the water protectors were arrested on false charges during Standing Rock. So that was a way to effectively combat the narrative of mainstream media showing water protectors as violent protesters. Mm. Um, And then the second Second thing I'll say is um, I served on the steering committee for about two and a half years of a political organization that was building a broad-front coalition for the working class to replace the Democratic Party. And the education that I received at that organization was really invaluable, and it has provided me with tremendous insight into the structures and history of the Democratic Party and why it will never be a vehicle for change. Mm. So while I left the organization, I remain firmly committed to the idea of building a broad-front coalition to form a new party for the working class.
2: Mm. Matt? Beautiful. Uh, I would say, I mean, man, I've done so many different events, so many different, like, uh, groups. I mean, it's kind of weird, like, being, like, a writer. I'm, like, on the fringes of, like, everything. You know, I've done things for when there was the climate march. I've done things for, um, you know, I've done, I've done things, when Occupy was going down, I did a bunch of Occupy events. I did a bunch of but I would say that if I really were to think about the things that it meant the most to me, was a lot of the stuff I was doing with, um, with, uh, when I, when I would be invited out to the October 22nd Coalition mm. against police brutality when they opened our events. Right. Um, those meant a lot to me. Um, when there was a vigil for Jesse Romero after he was shot in the back from below heights. Mm. Um, that was, a, that was a big one for me, I because mean, uh, you know, I'm not from Boyle Heights, but I'm originally from El Salvador. I grew up in El Salvador, huh? a yeah. kid, and that's a neighboring city. So like, to, to, to think about that, and think about how you know, he's a young man, and, and how he was shot in the back by the, by the cops, and, and to have been asked to or do a poem there, and I wrote this poem called uh, Kingdom of Cages, and it was about like the history of the LAPD, but it was you know, to do that in honor of, of, of his memory and his I mean, there were so many people taken by by, uh, pigs in L.A. It was a big, you know, that was was, um, pretty heavy. And the other one I would say that was really heavy, too, was I got asked to do a poem um, when Oscar Lopez Rivera was going around on the speaking tour after he got released. Mm, And so I actually got a chance to read this poem that I had written about him uh, in front of him. And like not like in front of him like you know, in front of like an odd I mean there was an r of people but like he's sitting in the front row. I'm standing in front of him. I'm, I'm like <laughs> looking him in the eyes wow. and I'm reading him his phone. That was pretty that was really that was a really, really intense moment. I'd say that was that was probably um that was big. Um I and mean, those those meant the most to me in terms of like, you know, that I mean the biggest things I've done are probably reading at Casa de los Americas and the University of Cambridge, but Mm. That doesn't mean nearly as much to me to to read a poem to Oscar Lopez Rivera while he's looking at. You know.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, that's beautiful right there. Yeah, that man, that's a beautiful moment right there. Um, I I would probably say for me I, I would add probably um, you know, participating in the um in the mass prison hunger strike that we did um to get out of solitary confinement, you know there was over thirty thousand of us um, prisoners across California who participated um, at, at its peak and as a result of that, um, you know over a thousand of us were released from solitary confinement, so we actually um, forced the state to release us and some had been uh in solitary for you know uh 40 years you know um 10 20 30 40 years i think uh hugo Pinal was in there for 42 years i believe so um for me that was the most probably the most um impactful campaign uh to um release us from solitary and and it just you know it touched me um And death was very real, uh, a very real, um, you know, thing that was um, in the air at that time. Somebody actually died uh, during the hunger strike, but it it was, it was, um, Mm. and I think that these types of actions, you know, whatever they are um, that touch something in us, I think that they touch something in us that um, will never allow us to um, turn our backs on this struggle and 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 you know uh, Matt when you were reading that um, poem to Oscar um, I'm sure even in your worst days that you can think of that and remember that um, this is a very beautiful thing you are doing with your poetry and you know I hope you continue with it as well but uh, so we're gonna we're gonna take a short break and um, we're gonna hear a song and then we'll come back uh and continue with this interview so we'll be back in a
3: minute Oh, yeah. really? Yeah.
0: XU 96.1 FM poll People's Revolutionary Radio on JV and you're listening to Free Aslan. And I'm back here with the interview with Karina and Matt. Uh, Karina Paez and Matt Cedillo. Uh, welcome back to Free Aslan. Uh, Matt and Karina, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. And um and so You know, I want to talk a little bit about this virus, you know, this uh, capitalist virus that's just plaguing everybody around the world now. Um, You know, they call it Corona virus. I don't know. It's capitalist virus to me. But anyway, the virus, you know, yeah, it's just it's it's incredible. Um, The virus, um, you know, that's that's it's very serious. You know, people are dying. Uh, thousands of people are dying but um thousands of people are dying from capitalism as well you know we can go back and
3: millions
0: are dying from capitalism but billion you know but um but on this virus that's affecting um everybody today uh you know and you know let me let me ask um let me start with karina um what are your thoughts on on this virus and and, and this question is for Karina. How, what, what are your thoughts on the virus and how it's being handled, um, mm-hmm. you know, by the state, you know, how it's being handled?
1: Right. So from a um, the COVID pandemic, from a political and economic perspective, I think serves to further illustrate in a very extreme way that the structural problems that already existed, for example, this pandemic reinforces reality meaning that we're living not in a democracy or even in a legitimate representative government. We're living in a system of inverted totalitarianism, which means that we have merely empty shelves of democratic structures that are meaningless and illegitimate because all of these government structures and systems are fully in control of the corporate oligarchy. And if readers want to have a look, I just did an article last week about this called um, the virus is cor- is uh, corporate oligarchy, can you survive on $1,200 for 10 weeks? Mm. And, of course, I'm referencing the farce that was the stimulus bill um, <coughs> where Steve Mnuchin said that uh, Americans should be able to survive for 10 weeks on $1,200. <laughs> so, you know, COVID, you know, kind of uh, slaps everyone in the face with the idea that, The government is a farce, and the stimulus bill did a good job of reinforcing that truth. For example, our elections are a farce. They're rigged at every level. Our political representatives are in the pocket of corporations and billionaires. And so the COVID crisis is yet another manifestation, which will hopefully push people and hopefully many more of us to understand that we'll never, ever be able to achieve any form of basic human rights, such as food, housing, or education as long as we keep supporting the colonial white supremacist two-party system with our time, money, and votes. Mm-hmm. Now, we really have a one-party system, the business party, but in typical American extravagance, we claim that we have two. So both of those parties serve to keep each other in power, and the COVID crisis, you know, hopefully will wake many people up to the reality that, um, you know, we will. it's pointless for us to keep investing our time and money Um, into structures that only contribute to our genocide
3: Hmm.
1: in terms of stats I'll refer briefly to um, some data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in 2018 only eight sixteen percent of quote unquote Latinos can work from home and I use the term Latino because it's just the term used in the data it's not my favorite term so that means that one in five Latinos can follow the shelter-in-place guidelines for unemployment now this will contrast with 37% of Asian workers who can work from home and 29.9% of white work workers who can work from home. So very not, not far behind the Latino worker is the black worker, 19.7% of which can refer, can work from home. So, you know, when those kind of statistics and material realities are combined with, uh, you know, an out of control pandemic, um, you know that that makes uh, um, kind of a um, a toxic soup of uh, of horrific conditions for our people. and the uh, the crisis serves to further illustrate why we should not be investing our time and our money into these systems with only which only serve to oppress us.
0: Mm, absolutely. and And, you know,, um, yeah, we can spend our time, resources, and money. Um, into the chicano nation itself into um, organizing our own communities uh, forming different ways of community control Um, we have so many resources but um, as you said a lot of times um, people put faith into um, the oppressor nation and their systems uh, and build you know the colonizer systems instead of uh, putting them resources back into our own community to build our exactly. own. Um, exactly. And, yeah, and and but you know I I see what's happening here and how it's being handled, and then I see countries like Cuba, and it's right. such a huge contrast to what we see going on here. Here it's like every person for themselves, and um, you know they don't even right. ta- they're not even going you know door to door or hey come to your community center and get some masks and some gloves they're like hey you f- whatever good luck uh you know <laughs> and we'll see you in the hospital or whatever right. but in cuba yeah. absolutely in cuba you know they're not only protecting their own people but then they're going around the world um exactly. pr- you know extending that assistance to other countries as well so that's a big contrast on how these two systems um you know how they yeah how they handles a situation a crisis like this where on the one hand it's you know everybody for themselves on the other hand it's we help our own people and we'll help other countries too so that's just you know it's, it's a beautiful thing to see cuba um even oh, yeah. after yeah after their economic um you know their their blockades and and all of this stuff going on attempts to destabilize them and still they come mm-hmm. out of it and still they assist others it's incredible it's an incredible example of what being a human being is really all about so oh, yeah and um and so i wanted to we're getting a little short on time but i wanted to ask matt um, a little bit about your books, your publications. Um, can you share some, um, you know, some of your works with us for the listeners? Maybe some have heard of your works, but they don't know where to get them, or they, you know, want to learn more about them. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your books, brother?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, my new book is Mowing Leaves of Grass. You can find it at FlowersongBooks.com. Uh, um, and uh, you scroll down and find the book. You can find it on Amazon, but don't, but don't give Jeff Bezos any more money. The reason the reason it's called "Mowing Leaves the Grass" is because uh, back in the 1800s, a guy named Walt Whitman uh, he said uh, some some really nasty stuff about Mexico, and and he was really a big proponent of the Mexican American union and Manifest Destiny in general. And he wrote a book called "Leaves of Grass," which is considered. Um, kind of like the preeminent work of American poetry and so I'm writing Mowing Leaves with Grass because you know
0: <laughs> I love that the way
2: I look at it Walt Whitman may have been talented but who cares
0: yeah. you know he hated
2: us Absolutely. why are we going to base our self-conception or our, our standard of excellence upon this guy who hated us right mm. so yeah he was really talented but guess what mm. I'm really talented mm. you know what I'm saying that part like you know based it on what being said you know what I'm saying because <laughs> I don't hate us
0: no hell you know no, no, no. Man.
2: You love us, Matt. You,
0: you love, that's love right. the people, but um, and that's beautiful. And and you're poet. You do a lot of poetry as well. I know. I've run mm-hmm. across people, and they're like, Matt. Matt does beautiful poetry. I mean, I've talked to people that know you and stuff, and that heard your poetry. So I know that you're a, a very good poet too. And I was hoping that um, you know, we mm-hmm. could hear some of your poetry live, but. You know we can do that at another time, but um, uh, we are running very very short, and um, and I do want to hear some of Matt's poetry, but um, maybe next time I have you all on. Um, listen, listen, listen. Oh, unless unless Matt, if if you're in the mood to read one of your poems, any of them, uh, if you want to read one for the for the listeners, I know I'm, I'm kind of you know um, springing this on you, but you know how if, much time we got. Um, we got a few minutes, um, we got about five, five minutes, Matt.
2: All right, we go. you ready? Yes. Summer born in summer homes of palatial groves for pain. It was only to unfold from the pages of the Secret Gardens, the Redfern groves, but not I. See, I come from the stock of star-eyed astronauts, we can got big dreams and wide eyes always running down the Devil's Highway through occupied America, on the way back to house on Mango Street, all those are the books he want us to read. There's a handball off the back wall of a panaderia born east the river post, Mendez versus Westminster, one generation with redland, And diplomas that were signed with those dreams. And that skin need not apply, see I come from struggle. And if my story offends you, as long as you made the mistake of seeking your reflection in my self-portrait, see this. Well, this may not be about you. Because some are born of the common core. Reflected faces grace the pages of documents to discover and age to be explored. World-world hardships crashed against new shores. New England, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, for others, pushed off Turtle Island. I flam, do not call this brown skin immigrant. Child of the sun. Son of the conquest. no blood. Runs the veins the east side of Los Angeles. I tell him it will need a tongue. A song will best be sung. Do not tell me who I am. Because I was raised like you. Miseducating in some of those very same schools off lessons and legends of honest Indians and Christian pilgrims and a nation of immigrants all united in freedom, that isn't until they pulled aside my white friend, pointed directly at me, and said, Scott, I judge you by the company you keep, and you spend your time with this. And the same old story is 1846. The invention of Uncle Sam, the stick-up man, a wet back. Show me your papers, now give me your labor, the melting pot. It was never made for the hand to clean it. The American dream has always come at the expense of those who tucked it in. You don't know that. So you don't teach it. Could write you a book, but you won't read it. So you know this is about you. And 1492... And the Trudiawaloop and California missions and Arizona schools, these racists that try to race us as their kids in cities that bear our names. which you can learn some today from Ferdinand to Minuteman, from Rapio to Alamo, from Popovodio, so I came the Indian that to live the in need for many with the 8th to 43 and try to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Canadian mines, we don't strike the bandana, there's a part Joaquin from that's Adelita from Richard Nixon, their Napoleon, from Paul to Houston, from Lonesome Republic to Christopher Columbus, all the way down. Down to Donald Trump we didn't cross the borders the borders cross us who you call an immigrant
3: mm. pilgrim oh,
0: beautiful, beautiful 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 <laughs> work love that one and we got about one minute left Matt let me let me ask both of you real quick we got about one minute I wanted to ask um, what does Aslan mean to you and and if you can start off Matt? Uh, with that question? I just told you. Okay, well, that's beautiful. All right, that's that's a beautiful answer. How about you, Karina?
1: For me, Aslan is essentially the Chicano expression of wanting a home. We have every right to lay claim to an association to land because that association with land means something to us on many levels. So Aslan provides both a theoretical and a literal place to point when we look to self-determination, liberation, and the right to reclaim our ancestral lands
0: beautiful well put and if anybody wants to get in touch with um, both of you um, on any of your projects or on Matt's books what have you is there an email or what kind of contact info do you have for the listeners
1: yes um, we can be emailed you can visit us on Facebook our page is tele-hagwag it's, it's with a hyphen tele-hagwag um, we're on Facebook we're on Instagram on Twitter our website is with a dot com. Um, You can reach out to Matt and I on Facebook. You can message us. Um, and we'll have um, lots of information coming, a lot more Chicano-based content with very sharp material-based analysis coming your way.
3: Mm,
0: beautiful. And thank you both. I finally got you both on the show. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to talk with you all and reschedule have you both back again i really enjoyed it right on and jelly thank
1: absolutely, you absolutely
0: i know the listeners did and i just want to say thank you both for um coming to free aslan uh and um and and i'll have you both back on again once again thank right you right on thank much.
1: you edmano okay. appreciate it
0: okay and thank you too matt
2: yeah.
0: and with that being said this is KEXU 96.1 fm whole people's revolutionary radio i'm jv and this was free aslan